Hey, quick note before we get started in this episode, because it's slightly different. We're introducing a new series of quick-fire interviews. We know not everyone can spend the time on our long-form interviews going well over an hour, so we're going to add some shorter segments with our quick-fire format. This is where we ask each guest the same kind of questions, broken into two sections. First, their thoughts on major areas of the sport of squash, and then two other areas that we learn more about their life. I love this section because I never know what people are going to say, and I've learned so much about the guests and new ways to try and do things. So we're going to try and do more interviews based on this shorter format because we're always up for experiments and trying new things. We're already full steam ahead on prepping for 2021 and looking to do even more. Thank you for all your support we've been getting, and your emails mean the world to me and the rest of the team. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. So, Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say, you've sponsored other avenues, but Squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring Squash? I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments. I've been to professional tournaments. And you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to it. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you, you might want to add? But I think you, you nailed it. That is, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Because <laughs> I'm in, like, with hope. I've met Hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation, but listening to that conversation you had with her, just, she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It's the fact that people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people, but when I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. I hope you can do some with international players as well, because it's going it's to you know, increase your audience. I, I definitely have aspirations of if I could snap my fingers and what will I have accomplished is, is almost interviewing anyone with a connection to the sport. So my longevity in this is I'm looking at this for 10 or 20 years and where can I get to in that period? But yeah, I'm mindful of the cross-pollination of different people I want to get involved in. You know, right now, more within my, my comfort zone is, and it's a pretty wide net of just people who are involved in the sport in the United States, just because I'm very familiar with that. But even there, we've had so many different nationalities covered. So if you want to know who I was just talking to, you just have to ask yourself one simple question. What does the Yankee Stadium, the Pepsi Center in Denver, and the University of Pennsylvania all have in common? Well, it's someone from the squash community, and that's Lee Witham. He is the CEO of ProSport LED. And as you might have heard, we recently announced that they are our first ever sponsor of Squash Radio. We couldn't be more excited to have another passionate squash player who wants to help others share their story. So you'll hear more from Lee during this interview, but let me give you some quick context. Lee is someone I've known for almost 15 years, and he is widely respected for his depth of knowledge, his passion for the sport, and getting the results that you want. He has branched out from squash in many different businesses, and today you'll learn more about him, 
his journey, and how he approaches the world of lighting and squash. We hope you enjoy our conversation. What about this? This call is being recorded. Before we get into my quick fire questions that I ask every guest, I'd like to do a quick squash specific quick fire with you. And this is looking back at your 35 years of involvement in the sport and just give, you know, one to two minute answer on each kind of topic. So this is my first time doing a squash specific quick fire, but here we go. You ready? I hope so. Yes. (laughs) First topic is professional squash. What's your one minute take? I think the improvement at the professional level has been amazing. Uh, And I watch it on a regular basis. The tour is constantly trying to improve. The matches are dynamic. I like the commentary with Joe and Joey Barrington and Paul Johnson. Always a touch of humor. Importantly, the refereeing is consistent. I still feel there are improvements needed, and you can probably guess where I'm going. (laughs) But I feel there needs to be a little bit more consistency in the quality of courts. I'd like to see more slow motion filming and, and improvement in the lighting. I think sometimes there's a bit too much emphasis on TV production and less on the player interaction with the court and lighting. And that's what I, I would like to see. But the, you only have to go back probably five years and the professional game is, is, is off the charts. And especially the women's game. I, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the women's game is just, I don't, I can't, I watch a lot of sports and I can't remember the level of play improving so much as it has in, in women's squash. And, and it's very, you, you cannot give the argument, I'm not watching the women anymore, because that was always something that people used to say years ago in squash, because they, were, because they had heavy wooden rackets and stuff like that. It was very tough. But now, the games are very entertaining to watch. Completely agree. And I would say every five years, the sport has almost dramatically evolved, whether it's technology. And that kind of goes across even just from sports science. Look at the physicality of all the players on the tour, both the men and the women. And you can notice if you're a measure every five years, there's distinct changes. But I completely agree. And and longevity. Mm-hmm. Longevity of players. Yeah. yeah. College squash. <laughs> so I really believe that squash associations around the world should go visit a U.S. college squash match. The only thing that's missing, I believe normally, is there are not enough seats to watch. I remember attending a few Trinity games and thinking, I'll just show up. The match starts in about half an hour. I'll get there 10 minutes before. No seats. And the atmosphere is completely different. And I just feel that I'm not sure that many associations around the world are aware of this. And I think everybody should just turn up in the U.S. for a, a match between you know, Harvard and Trinity or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's something that's going to open their eyes to what uh, squash can be in their country. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the things... The energy that, is palpable, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I think one of the interesting things that's is overlooked is the majority of junior squash players in the U.S. playing for themselves week in, week out. And when they get to college, you see this energy from them where they realize they're representing a college. And it's quite a a mental transition for them. And I've seen kids, they've been playing six, eight years, week in, week out. And they get to college and they're representing their school and very focused. They love it. They, They just get this new dimension to their squash. And the one final thing is I I keep hearing things about it's a white dominated sport. 
I think if you just attend a, a junior squash tournament, you'll see that this is rapidly changing. Uh, and that's a little bit of a, someone's not really uh, done their research here. To touch on the college squash, again, I think that's another marker that every five years or 10 years, there's definitely change. But now we just have to look at Ali Farag, who's gone on to be, went to Harvard and become world number one, to say that going to yeah. play college squash is not going to hurt your professional chances. In fact, there's a strong argument to be made that it's going to improve it because the first couple of years on tour are extremely challenging for anyone. So here you can still get high quality matches, getting an education, and then uh, jump onto the tour and quickly cover ground. This is actually, if you, if you think about it, tennis, this was the trend that would go on. Another famous Harvard player was James Blake, who went to Harvard for tennis, played for two years, and then joined the tour professionally. Um, so Michael Stich as well, the, the German player. At mm -hmm. the time, it was uh, big news that he'd actually just uh, graduated um, college and uh, was going on to the world tour and was playing in the final at Wimbledon. So yeah. it goes back quite a way, but it's definitely a change now. But you also hit the, the nail on the head that if you have been used to only playing individual competitive squash and college squash is really, it's a team sport. And yeah. it's a very, it's a different mindset shift that you have to make. And it's, it goes down to day-to-day -day routines of practicing where you're not just practicing for yourself. You, you need to make sure that your team members are getting better and that you're improving your game. So it's a lot of give and take in that regard. And I think that can translate to the results in, of winning and losing. Exactly. Um, junior squash. Something I have a lot of experience with. Same thing with junior squash. When I first arrived on the scene, I'm going to be pretty blunt, but the, the, the playing level was pretty average at best. Very often, but you're, you you're, you're saying average at best in comparison to the rest of the world. Yes, of course, yeah, yeah. Okay. In that you would see people in the second round of a tournament with a straight arm forehand uh, who was missing serve returns and stuff like that. So, not today is the U.S. is seen as one of the strongest countries in the world when it comes to junior squash. And one of the things that you do see is that the technique levels are there. The, game, the players have been nurtured the right way. And I, the only thing I think the U.S. misses is that they don't get enough international experience. And so that sort of, it's always a bit too big an event when they go into the British Open. But yeah, I think another side to, you, uh, to, to junior squash, it is a little bit, for me, a, a vehicle to get into college. I would like to see a little bit more. I'll give you an example. If I put on a video of the top players playing in the lounge at the squash club, I don't see a lot of interest from players going to watch that. Back in my day, I would study by watching Rodney Martin, Chris Dittmar, Jancha. Whereas saying that, I'd probably have been a better student <laughs> if I'd have spent less time studying squashing and more academics. But yeah, it, it's something that needs to, it's still developing and the balance needs to get there where kids, my feeling is a lot of kids are a little bit overworked with the academics and they don't have a lot of time. So I do understand when they're just going from their lessons straight to somewhere else, but I'd like to see a little bit more interest in, in the history of a sport. Mike Tyson, these guys know the sport inside out. And I think I do as well. And I'd like to see that from more junior squash players, be students of the game as, as well. 
Agreed. I, I was late to the game and I, I played at a boarding school and picked up the sport and I really knew nothing of it. I, I was fascinated to learn about other people playing squash. I didn't even know that there was professional squash till probably two years after I'd picked up a racket. And I was like, what is all this uh, junior competitive ranking or what's team? There's a Team USA. So I've been fumbling through the industry for many years and it's been so exciting to learn about all the different varieties of where squash is played and how it's played. And I, I feel somewhat, obviously I was naive back then, and but I think that element was just, I just loved the sport. And that's what's carried yeah. me through to today. That um, And within the environment, the first time I played was team squash. And that felt an interesting balance between I was playing soccer. And so I liked that I could control it myself and however hard I worked on the sport, but it contributed towards the team's success as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Refereeing. Always a, a controversial subject. I know it's not going to be easy, but I would like to simplify the rules. I think the rules of squash should be on one page. Although the rules have not changed too much, I do see pro squash referees making sure that players making every effort to play the game and not focusing on the rules and interference and stuff like that. I think the level of refereeing and junior squash, not just in the US, but around the world is well known simplifying the rules, being consistent with your decisions and making quick decision decisions will allow the game to improve at all levels. And I think we just need to make it easier to understand because if you go and look at the rules of squash, who even gets to the second page? You know, it's, it's not easy. I think uh, the game's going to go forward. People, more people will be interested in refereeing. And the guys who go out there and referee, you've got to hand it to them. It's, it's a bit of a thankless job in most cases. And so for them to get into it and do it, you have to take your hat off to them. But I really feel we need to simplify the rules. Refereeing is its own skill to develop. Just as we focus on our forehands, backhands, and our, and our actual squash game, refereeing needs that same level of dedication to improve. And I agree when I would sometimes describe the rules to other people. There's things that are black and white. But there's a tremendous amount of gray in our sport. And I think you're right trying to reduce those gray areas to really improve the game. And if you're a 13-year-old, <laughs> if you're a 13 year old, you don't want to get into those gray areas too much. And so I think it's the, whether it's US squash or the WSF, I think everyone needs to get together and make a, a one-page document. And I think it should be something that a 13-year-old should quite easily understand. So another topic, which is I would say a pretty hot topic for our sport. And really, I attribute this towards where we are all such passionate squash players that we want other people to experience it. But the courts and the programs have really been in a lot of private institutions or prohibitive. So access to the sport, what are your thoughts? So having lived in the UK and Germany when squash was its, was its most popular and I saw the rise and I saw the decline in, in numbers. And, you know, I saw at the time that everybody wanted to build a squash court and make some money from it. And the only ones that uh, really existed were the ones that reinvested and tried to build a, a community within their club. And that was very often led by the squash pro. And that's the way it needs to go. But I think you need to be my, more diverse with the demographic um, that you want to include. You very often see uh, clubs coming up, but they're very focused on junior squash. At the moment, I'm seeing a lot of pickleball and paddle going very well. And these sports, uh, they work for every demographic. As an example, 
the demographic of, of people over 60 years old is almost non-existent in squash. I'm a real believer in multi-directional movement for people over 60. And if you add in the aspect that you have to react to a ball that's not always going to be in the same location, the, the neuromuscular pathway development improves. So we can attract people at that age to the game by just getting them on court and, and hitting a ball around with them. Yeah. It's the absolute opposite of what most people do over 60 years old, where nearly all movement is linear and with no react reaction aspect, treadmills, ellipticals, indoor cycling, etc. So it's something I feel we need to focus on bringing in all the diet demographic. And, and I think we'll have a nice community and people will like to belong to a club and rather than just focus on one area of squash. That's a very good point. And I think a lot of times when we refer to this topic, a lot of it is talking about how do we get new players onto the courts or new courts available to new players. But one of the big hurdles you just identified is the ball itself. And I think just as in the US and from the conversion from the 80s into the 2000s where the ball was such a hot topic, I think we need to now make the ball another hot topic about how do we use different balls for different levels of the game or where we're at? And it can make a huge impact on just being able to enjoy and play the game. I give the equivalent, and I've picked up golf in the past 10 years, and the equivalent is everyone is playing golf from the championship tees. And look at how many different ways yeah. that they design golf courses to make it more accessible. And I think we need to do a more conservative effort in the sport. And I say that where a lot of this comes down to national governing bodies doing it. And we didn't do it at U.S. Squash when I was there in, in, a, in, a, in an effective manner, even despite our wanting to. So I think we can well, that, flip this yeah. and make it more grassroots. I think there's another aspect you could change. This is really just off the top of my head here, but by changing the tin height. If you Absolutely. Could, We've got it at 17 for the pros, 19, 19 for the regular players. If we could fold that uh, tin height up again and have 38 inches, you've got a three-foot high tin. You're going to play the ball higher. It's going to be the courts then smaller. So there's that aspect as well. So you need to uh, look at all dimensions, not just – I think the ball is the obvious one most people go to, but I think changing heights of the tin might be something that's a new invention for someone to come up with. You're completely right, and that was actually part of um, – we would talk about that a lot at U.S. Squash as well. And a lot of it is, despite us talking about it, it's actually going out and making the changes. So we're starting to see different ways and areas for the sport to be played and where hopefully those innovations can come out. Speaking of changes in programs, the squash education and alliance programs or the SEA programs, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, first, I think you really need to take your hat off to, to, to people like Brian Patterson, Iago Cornez, Barrett in Portland and George and all these guys that do this work day in, day out. You, you have to admire their work. It's incredible. The energy these guys have at day to day is unparalleled. So. That's something that for me is going to, again, tie into access to squash courts because I feel that a lot of the kids coming from these programs are getting out of college and where can they play after that? So a lot of them tend to go back to their club that they learned. and But if they move to a different city, it's very difficult for them to get access to squash courts. So I feel that everything's going in the right direction. And fairly quickly in the last two years, and Tim, I feel, is the right person to be in charge because he just has this very 
holistic approach to everything. And I, I feel that good things are really going to happen in the next one to five years with, with the organization. Agreed. And I think um, for me, having been so close to Metro Squash, I've also had a, a unique purview into this. And one of the developments that has happened in the past, I would say five or seven years, is the community squash model in Portland, which was the first one to really do it and establish it. And now it's expanded it's to, power, yeah. yeah, and now it's expanded to four. And I think that is something that is really important for clubs to consider because it is it provides that inclusive aspect where it's not just about an SCA program or junior squash or adult squash, but it really is that cross-pollination of all of those programs coming together. And I think that is really where... And, and it should it end at, at college. These yeah. guys want to play squash afterwards. You've got to put something in place um, for them to, to play it. The diversity, in my experience with the sport, is really what's kept me going and learning. You know, half my, where I played in, in college, half my team was international, or more than half of it. And we were representing Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, Colombia. And so it was just eye-opening to learn how squash is played in their country. And, and also the talent, <laughs> they were all the, some of the best players. So it was very exciting, not just as a culture experience, but also from a, a talent experience. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So before we go into the quick fire, there's also, uh, what are your thoughts about potential future plans? If, I've, I think I've spoken to you about this before, but I feel that I haven't been on a squash court for 30 plus years and coaching a fair number of decent players at junior level to professional level. Now that I've bowed out of, of teaching, I would love to be able to get a YouTube channel or something along those lines where all my ideas are just accessible for the, every single squash player, whether that's a beginner through to advanced players. It would be great just to be able to get that out and maybe a 10-part series or something. But uh, yeah, that's something that I'm interested in doing. I'm in the process of building a net zero passive house here in Spain. That's something that, again, as you've probably figured out, I'm very interested in. And, and keep you know, the product development going. I re was recently reading about a guy called Will Ahmed, who's a, who's a, who was the captain at Harvard, and he's the inventor of Whoop, the fitness app. And I used to hit with him at the Princeton Club and know his dad very well, Frank, and, uh, and he inspired me. He, this is a guy who just started with nothing and just said, look, I need to get this going. It needs to be on the market. Uh, and it's sometimes very easy to rest with what you have and uh, you've got to keep pushing. And that's what I want to do with lighting. I, I feel we're, we're still in the first half and we need to work towards development and, and making things more efficient and, and easier to play with that people don't even notice the lighting's on. Yeah, it's it sounds as if with the respect to lighting that if you've done your job well, people shouldn't notice it. Yeah. Exactly. I have, a, I have a quick story with actually Nick Matthew, who played at the, the Urban Squash program in Cleveland. And I asked him, how was the glass court lighting? And he said, well, the only compliment I can give is that I didn't even notice it. He said, I, we had a great game and uh, never even noticed the lighting. And that's what I want to hear as a lighting provider. We're, we're not the ones who are looking for the uh, recognition. So during this quick break between games, we're going to quickly thank our sponsor, ProSport LED. And this is a unique episode because we're taking a break from talking to our sponsor to talk about our sponsor. But since this is already happening, let's talk LED lighting. 
You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that ProSport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. I've enjoyed doing a squash quick fire. I think I might have to do some more of that next time. But now we have another quick fire, which is what I ask every guest, because uh, it's always fascinating to hear how they answer it. So we're going to go into the standard quick fire. Start off with kind of an easy one, which is, do you have a favorite movie or documentary? Uh, I, actually, I really, I'm not a big movie watcher. I'm more of a reader. And so I hope the next question is not, which books it's, do you read? <laughs> well, it, it does go down there. So I'll give you a little bit of time okay. to think about it. But we can go into the next question. And that is, what gets you fired up? Now, this can be in squash world or outside of squash world. And it can either be something that is fires you up because it's like very negative or something that's very positive and you lean into. So what gets Lee with them fired up? Well, I can give you both sides to that. And it sounds a little bit passive, but travel. I love going into new towns, cities, and seeing how people live, the architecture, the just the history of a city and a country. I'm looking to go back to Prague, Budapest, and Croatia next year. And I travel from city to city in Spain and Portugal. I've covered pretty much most of the U.S., that's something that really gets me interested. I know it sounds a bit boring, but... And then dislikes extremism. I just don't like... I know we've had a few changes, possibly, but too far right, too far left-wing, religious, ultra-nationalism. Why do we have to always choose sides? I, I would just like to see people think about things a little bit more and not just have to go left or right on things. And it doesn't matter what it is, but extremism doesn't really sit well with me. Yeah, without going too deep into politics, but for me, what has really been coming out of the past, let's call it evolving four to seven years, is thinking less about left or right, but really how do we move forward? And yeah. I'm just as puzzled like many others on how to move that forward, but that's where I'm trying to orient my position. Yeah, I think um, it's in the title of the country is the United States of America. Yeah. That's obviously, it's happening around the world, but yeah, it's something that I think it will change. I really believe it's going to change. I think, well, change with action is how it comes about. So yeah. we can't just sit and wait for it to happen. It's We need to be participants. And yeah. there was a comment I heard of, you know, leaning back into what does it mean to be a citizen? And it's not, and back in Roman times, you earned your citizenship through service. And so I think there's an element or you can use JFK. It's not uh, what can your country do for you, but what can you do for your country? Yeah. And that, you know, and that all starts with voting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. The next question is, are you familiar with TED Talks? Uh, yes. I, when you talk about documentaries, that's something that's probably not over the last year or so, but a few years back, I tended to watch TED Talk pretty often. 
Great. So the scenario here is you have to give a TED talk, but it's not something that you could be known for. So in this case, you know, if maybe a few years ago you could have used lighting, but you can't use lighting now and you can't use squash. So what would be something you would have to go explore and share in a TED talk? Well, one of the most difficult things for me, I think, would be able to stay on the red carpet because I tend to march around a lot when I'm talking. But yeah, I, I think one of the things I would like to talk about, uh, and this is probably a little bit too deep, but is balance in life. Is, is like when people train, you have to give back to your body. You have to stretch nutrition, but also have a dessert, but not too often. I'm a great believer. I don't work a great deal, but when I do, it's quite intense. So I work two to three hours a day in the morning, but enjoy your lunch. Get to know your staff. Enjoy your breakfast. Know what's in your breakfast and just have curiosity. And I think I would, you know, like to talk about that kind of stuff to the, the average person out there. Watch Fox News, watch MSNBC, do nothing, be with yourself, <laughs> meditate. All these things, I believe, is a, a message that people need to get. And that balance it will make your life a lot happier because your body will break down if you push it too hard. I uh, completely agree and have tried to, to give that a, a lot of attention over the, the years. And one interesting aspect that I add on to that is balance can be measured in several different ways. So don't beat yourself up on a day-to-day -day basis or week-to-week -week or month-to-month -month or even year-to-year, -year, right? Like if it's, quote, your busy season and you have three months of just you're working 12, 15 hours a day, don't beat yourself up, but then realize right. now in the following three months, can you work less? Can you recover? And I do like something that I'm sure you and I both know is when you're trying to get into peak performance for squash, it's about stress yeah. and recovery. And so there, from a sports perspective, we understand recovery isn't just a nice to have, it's a must have. Yeah. And so if we deploy that in our lives, we may not be aware of all the stressors in our life. So that's something to become aware of. And then two, what's the recovery from that? So I love what you said and can't wait to hear the TED talk on it. <laughs> okay, so the last question, are there any books that you would recommend people to read and potentially why? Again, a little bit too deep maybe, but Meditations by Marcus Aurelius is something that I go back to every year pretty much and just either listen to it on audiobook or just read through it. The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek is something that I found quite interesting. And I remember talking about this as a coach as well and having the right approach. What are you looking at doing here? And one other book is a little bit out of left field, but it's a book called The Perfect Practice by David Ledbetter, the, the golf pro. It was something along with meeting David Pearson. And I read his book and I thought, well, this can really be broken down into how the body works and how to get the maximum out of your body yet be efficient. And so it's, a, it's definitely a book worth breezing through. But those are the sort of three I'd say are, are the most interesting. And I think it'd be interesting for other people to read as well. It definitely. I'm familiar with Simon Sinek. He's one of my, my favorite. He's, he's very inspirational and his thoughts are just are brilliant. So I, I definitely love that and would love to read the other two. But the, what, the funny story there is that I probably saw Simon as he came out on the YouTube and, and I wrote to him and he wrote back to me at that time. I just thanked him for uh, putting everything in perspective. He's got this very special talent of just, again, in my mind, breaking things down, things down and, and putting them back in place the right way. And uh, yeah, 
very good guy. Yeah, he's brilliant at those things. And um, as I ventured into business, I've developed what I would call my core pillars. And so Simon Sinek is definitely one of my core pillars in terms of the first book that he started with is uh, Start With Why. And that yeah. was his own journey through it, but also how he went from being an unhappy consultant and arguably on paper, he had everything in life, but why was he still unha unhappy? And then he went back to the root cause issue of what's his why. So I always love that. As always, Lee, I enjoyed talking with you immensely. And it's great to now have one of these conversations on the record. And thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do for the sport. And it's not lost on us that you're getting deeply involved in all these other sports, but we know that your heart still lies with squash and you're still thinking and looking out for it. And as is the squash community for you. So thank you. No, you're welcome. Thank you for approaching me with this. It's definitely something that made me think and did I want to do it? And uh, I'm glad I did. Thank you so much. Till another time. All right. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, guys. That wraps our first quickfire breakout segment. If you want to hear full length episodes, you can go to Squash Radio using your preferred podcast listening method. We love hearing from you, what you like, what you don't like, suggestions on what you might want to hear on this channel, or recommend a story or a person to be interviewed. You can reach out on any of the social media platforms or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again, and until next time.